Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here on a gorgeous summer's morning in the very heart of the Lake District today with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. Farmers are now making hay and boy, this is haymaking weather of the ultimate degree. Marvellous weather. We've hit the ground running today. We've got the Rose Bay Willow Herb out. We've got the last of the foxgloves. We've got the swallows sweeping through this summer air. Not yet nine o'clock, Mark. Busy on the roads, but it doesn't get better than this, does it? Opal skies, not a breath of wind. And we're in a side valley of Borrowdale and one of the iconic Lakeland Dales. Where are we today, Mark? Right, well, I'm looking up to Seathwaite Fell the majestic head of the valley with Hind Crag up to the left and Base Brown up to my right. So I'm at Seathwaite Farm, right at the very road end of the valley, uh, where many adventures begin. Primarily, people are climbing Scorfell Pike. And they were going up in groups already. I've seen groups going up. I think this area is exquisite. And the reason we're here today actually underlines that. So a little bit of Country Stride exclusive history. Before we set out up Scarfell Pike on episode one, we did a test recording, Mark. This is way back in time. <laughs> to work out if uh, our little idea for a podcast had legs. <laughs> and um, or, or voice, even. Well, that is still debatable. <laughs> uh, but we came here, didn't we? We came to Seathwaite, and we came here for the same reason we're here today, What's that reason, right? <laughs> to visit the wad mines. And truly, this is the epicentre of what made Derwent pencils significant. There was a huge value in these wad mines, and they now are quite innocent on a hillside. Most people are ignoring them, but actually, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? This is our 60th episode, so it's really nice to go all the way back to the start and um, pick up that story that we trialled then. Um, but it's not just the two of us today, Mark, as it was back then. We've got a fabulous guest. Who's our guest? Well, he's another Mark, so that's always a plus. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Hatton, who actually knows a, a little bit about mining in the Lake District. There are a few genuine experts, and Mark is your man for the Wad Mines and many others. Well, no need for any more preamble. It's already getting pretty hot out here. So we're going to make our way up, battle the bracken, I think is going to be one of the key themes of today, uh, onto the fell side. Let's go and meet Mark and discover the history of wood mining in Borrowdale. We've gathered in the fields at Seafate Farm, which has been allocated a great deal for parking and mobile homes. It's to relieve the road that approaches the farm. But we've come into the car park, we've come right round into the corner of the field, adjacent to the bridge, over the River Derwent, which is quite low at this time of year. And we're considering the, where we are, and primarily I want to consider who Mark Hadden is. Great to see you, Mark. Yeah, I've, I come from Newcastle, Newcastle on Tyne. Um, but all of our family holidays as children were in the Lake District. Wandering then walking the fells was what we, we just did and, and is what I've done ever since. And I have to say, for probably 50 of my 60 years, I was completely ignorant of mining history in the Lake District. I walked all the fells and no doubt I walked over spoil heaps and past other entrances and past wheel pits and leets and all the infrastructure of mining and didn't see any of it. But my story actually started here as well, oh. at, at the Wad Mine. So one, one very wet weekend, I 
was looking for climbing opportunities in Boyerdale and it was so wet and windy, Shepherd's Crag and all the normal places you would go were really out of bounds. And one of the guys who was with our little group said, there's a mine here that you can, you can have a look at. So I assumed he was talking about Honister Mine at the time, which I was aware of, but actually he meant here. And we had a good day wandering around this area. And I was absolutely fascinated. I thought, what was that that I've just seen? What's the history of that? What does it mean? Um, and that sort of peeled back my eyelids and exposed me to what is the mining heritage of the Lake District, which is rich and varied, going back many centuries, um, right up into recent, late 20th century. There, there was still mining going on in the Lake District, and we still have mining up at Honister today. And I've spent probably the last 10 years revisiting all those fells I thought I knew really well. And there's something particularly sweet about finding new things in familiar places. And boy, did I find new things. I found a mining history which has left so much behind, but it hides in plain sight. And you realise that well before the Lake District was a much-loved tourist landscape, it was an industrial landscape where men, women and children tried to eke out a living in the most savage and uh, difficult environment possible. One thing we should probably start with is explaining all the terms that are used for this wonder material. Today it's called graphite, but the word graphite was only invented in the 19th century. Graphite is a sort of Greekism for writing stone. Before the word graphite was literally invented, it had numerous names. It was plumbago, it was wad, it was black cork, it was black lead. It had dozens of names because it is a unique material in the British Isles here. Graphite exists in many places around the world, but it, in 16th, 17th century, the only place you could find graphite in the British Isles, in fact, most of Europe, was here, in Borodale. And one thing we should be aware of is just how remote this site was. Right up until the end of the 19th century, where we are at the south end of Borodale was virtually inaccessible. There was no road from here to Keswick. Um, the only way you could get from here to Keswick was via Watendluth. You'll know well, and many of the listeners will probably know, the track from Watendluth down to Rothway follows a very um, steep dill. You couldn't possibly do that in anything other than a very sturdy pack pony or by Shanks's pony by walking it. If you look at the road today between Grange and Rothwaite, it cuts through a lot of rock yes. that has been mined out or taken out by the road builders in the early 20th century. Before that, there was no direct access from here to Keswick. So the only way to get out of here was either over Grains Gill and across the Wasdale Head, where there's a good pony track, or from here over Honister Pass and down into Buttermere, where there was again a good pony track, but very, very steep. Or as I said, from here to Rossway and over to Watendleth, and then down past Surprise View and along the, uh, the valley to Keswick. Which is interesting because it meant that the jaws of Borodale had locked your... Absolutely. They indeed were locked. Where we stand today was a very remote, inaccessible hamlet that was beyond the law, beyond civilization as it was seen in those days, and yet found here sometime, we don't know precisely when, but probably the early 1500s, mm -hmm. was the wonder material of Wad. And we believe it was found by a shepherd wandering the fells, following a storm when a tree had been uprooted by a gale or possibly lightning, and he found glistening in the roots of the tree this grey, shiny material that he went to explore, he picked it up, and he quickly realised it left marks on his hands. And he quickly realised that this had some functionality to him because he could use it to mark his sheep. Yep. And that was an important thing in those days because the sheep would wander the fells and each shepherd would want to differentiate his herd of sheep from the next chap's herd of sheep and he would then start trading that wad to other shepherds who wanted to do the same so for years wad was used for marking sheep now in mark's hand we have a classic piece of shiny gray stone a pebble you might say it's about an inch long and half an inch wide. I'm in old money. <laughs> and it's smooth and rounded. Can you describe what that is, Mark? So this is a lump of pure graphite. And graphite is itself made up of pure carbon. 
chemical composition of this material is C. Nothing else, nothing added, nothing taken away. It's just carbon. But what is fascinating about the way the carbon atoms join up in graphite is they join up sort of two-dimensionally. As a result, it has the property that each individual layer of graphite can slide off the layer underneath it. But within the layer, you cannot get the bonds apart. Um, which is why graphite today is, is regarded as a wonder material because it is the source of graphene. And there are people, scientists, all over the world trying to find new applications for graphene because it is the thinnest material known to man, one molecule thick, but is yet extremely strong. But back in the day, this material was wandered because as you slide it over paper or over the fleece of a sheep, it leaves behind a layer of graphite, a layer of carbon, which marks. Well, that was a fascinating introduction to the rock, and I think it would be great to be actually get up to those mines and get a feel for it. So we'll cross the River Doant, and we'll beat our way through the bracken. I've come on to the wooden bridge spanning the Derwent, and actually the river name means the river flanked by oak trees. Here you've got the confluence of Grainsgill, Ruddy Gill, which is higher up, and Stockley Beck coming off by Taylor Gill Force, converging off from Stye Head. So this is a wild section of river. When we're looking up to the west, we can see Sour Milk Gill tumbling down cascades out of Gillacombe. And in the conifers just up above the farm, that once was a trout farm. The river has played a, an important part in the making of the economy of this valley. It's central to what Borrowdale's about. Yeah, water was the reason why the Lake District was one of the first industrial landscapes in the British Isles. People, again, would find that surprising, but this, in its day, was a far more industrial area than Manchester or Leeds or London or anywhere else. And that was because the power, the energy needed for industrialization came from water. You needed reliable water sources, and the faster and steeper that water was flowing, the more power it would generate. So water was harnessed for numerous purposes in the Lake District, not least for mining purposes. Water was needed originally for hushing the fells, to, to wash away the surface soil to try and expose the bedrock to see where there could be mineral uh, lead veins or copper veins under the, um, under the surface. Here where we are on the Derwent overlooking uh, the Wad Mine, water was harnessed for the mill. The mill which was needed for the very simple processing of the graphite that came out of the ground. And as we look to our left, we see part of the mill remains. And so that isn't a sheep fold, it's the mill remains. Well, that is a mill remains, and that lump over there was where the water wheel was. The actual sheep fold, which I look at with admiration because it's a very long one and unusual in that the entrances have got coins, very large stones very untypical of ordinary regular sheepfold. That's the sort of a hint that it was part of another building. It had a prior life. Yeah. And there was a leet across the fell. You can still track it today. You won't be able to see it today because of the bracken is choking the area. Coming now. off Sour Milk Gill. Coming off Sour Milk Gill, there would be a leet captured in the water, into the water course there that would feed the water across to a water wheel here by a series of, of channels dug through the ground, across the ground, and then wooden launders mini wooden channels to feed the water to the wheel there. So if we'd been standing here, what, 150 years ago, this would be an industrial landscape with wheels um, turning and chains clanking, driving the milling machinery necessary to process the graphite that was being readied for market. Still standing on the bridge, before we actually set course on this uh, fascinating expedition, it's a moment, Mark, for you to sort of give us a, a, a visual geographical sense of what we can see up that steep slope. I can see the spoil banks. They must tell us something. Yeah, the, the spoil banks are what gives the game away. The spoil banks are what tells us that a huge amount of industry went on here over many, many years. As I look up the hill, at the very top, the highest spoil bank was Harrison's level. 
Um, and Harrison would have been the man, he would have been the sort of foreman probably, who was in charge of driving that level. Um, and then as we come down the hill, we see other sort of grey masses um, standing out amongst the green background. And each of those represent a individual mine working, an individual level that has been driven into the hillside in search for the elusive wad or graphite. And as we look up there now, we can see Harrison's, we can see Gill stage, we can see the old um, lower wad hole, um, and we can see Gilbert's level. And just off to our left, the biggest level of the lot, but the biggest failure of the lot, is, is Robson's level, which is what made the mine ultimately fail. Every mine goes through cycles of success and failure, and it usually ends with one big failure that completely empties the coffers. And Robson's, which as I say, is the lowest level we can see off to our left, and yet is the biggest heap of them all, didn't produce any wood at all, but definitely used up all the resources uh, of the investors at the time. So let's clang the gate and go over the footbridge and head towards the bracken. We haven't come far, uh, having just passed the so-called sheepfold. You mentioned at the very start about this lone shepherd, which turns into an enigma because, of course, that becomes a stepping stone into an industry. As ever, th this shepherd would not own this land. He would be a tenant paying rent to the landowners, and the landowners then start to show an interest that there's something of value on their land. And the landowners, right back to the 13th century through to the 16th century, were Furness Abbey. This land had been gifted to the abbey by the crown way back. And the Furness Abbey, which is a very wealthy Cistercian abbey down near Barrow and Furness, owned this land and they took an interest in the precious word. Now we can't prove for certain whether the monks used the word in drawing up their religious texts, but we believe they probably did. Uh, we believe that some of the lining on their manuscripts was done from wad. So that was probably the first use of wad as a writing material on parchment. But wad found numerous other uses over the years. And the first application that we know of was for counterfeiting coins. If you go to the Tully House Museum up in Carlisle, you'll find a fascinating example of wads in its very early use to counterfeit coins from the reign of Henry VII. This uh, mould for counterfeiting coins was found in a wall in Wasdale in the 19th century, where it had clearly been hidden by whoever the counterfeiter was hundreds of years earlier. But that application for wad just shows us how people were showing an interest in the material and working out what applications it could be used for, many of them illicit right from the beginning. Coming up onto the bank, the lower bank of Robson's level, fascinating spot. Now, this is the bottom of the mine you, you were saying, Mark. Yeah, this is the lowest level. And slightly counterintuitively, the lower the level usually means it's younger. Mining tends to start at the top of a hill, where the vein, whether that's lead or copper, or in this case, graphite wad, um, outcrops and comes to the surface. That tends to be where it's first found and where it's first exploited. And you can exploit where the vein comes to the surface using very rudimentary techniques. Just literally dig a hole into the material that you see at your feet. But in the Lake District in particular, if you dig a hole, all that does is fill up with water. And so you get what's known as the law of diminishing returns. The further down you dig, the deeper you dig the hole, the more water you have to bail out each day, and the more work you have to do to climb down into your hole, to lift the water out of your hole before you can do anything productive, to go and get rock from the bottom of your hole. And remember that rock is then coming out to surface at the top of the mountain. So later generations of miners developed the technique of digging tunnels. And what they do is they go further down the hillside and they start a tunnel um, known in mining parlance as an adit, and that cross cuts through barren ground into meet the vein inside the hillside. 
and they would dig that at it at a slight incline so any water within the mountain, and mountains have water within them that runs down through the natural fissures of the rock, will just run out by gravity down the adit. When the adit meets the vein of whatever the material that they're mining in that place, they will work up into the vein, pulling rock down into the level so gravity is working on their side and then they will carry it or wheelbarrow it and later bring it out on rail tracks uh, along the adit to the surface and then as the mine gets um, more and more worked they've exhausted the vein at the end of that adit they will dig another adit further down the hill but if you bear in mind as you go further down the hill you're getting further away from the vein so you have more work to do before you get payback. And that's why within the Lake District, you get the creation of companies um, where multiple shareholders can pool their resources to allow that capital to be available to drive longer and longer edits. And the very first company for mining was created in the British Isles at Keswick in 1564, um, which was the Company of Mines Royal. You mentioned about Furness Abbey being the prime owner of this land. Along comes Henry VIII, dissolution of the monasteries. The land comes into new ownership. How does that influence and impact on this sort of feature? Yeah, so when Henry VIII seized all the uh, monastic lands, one of those lands was Borrowdale. And, and what the Crown did during the 1530s, 40s and 50s was they went and did an inventory of all of the land that they now owned. And eventually the Royal Commissioners come to Borrowdale. They find their way here. It's a terribly difficult journey for them to find this land. Um, and they are aware that there is a wad hole here. They are aware that somebody is taking economic value from the land that the crown wants and from that point on we have documentary evidence of the people who are renting this land from the crown and are exploiting the precious wad that was in it but again bear in mind back in those days the application of wad was for relatively low value purposes marking sheep was not a big payer but as more applications are found the value of WAD goes up and up and up and it starts its very rapid ascent so that by the 19th century, WAD is selling for over £4,000 a tonne, which is the most valuable material to come out of the earth of, of Cumbria. In fact, short of the odd small gold mine, it's the most valuable material to come out of the earth in the British Isles. What was the first upgrade in its value? What application? So they found that graphite was a fantastic lubricant. And what they used it to lubricate was ship's rigging. Um, all the blocks and tackles and ropes that have lots of rub points. If you rub them with um, wad, it made them far more resilient. For one period, it starts being used for medicinal purposes. Any new material, some quack will claim it has medicinal value. Now, let me tell you, like many of those materials, they did far more harm than good. A mad hatter was used A mad that. hatter using mercury, indeed. Um, other applications, when they started realising that graphite has a very high melting point, you could use it to line moulds. If you're moulding a cannon or a cannonball, if you line that mould with graphite, you get a far better cast. And this is where graphite starts to become of strategic value to the nation. England's navy had better quality cannons and cannonballs than any other navy. The cannons and cannonballs cast with graphite were stronger. The cannonball travelled further, it was far less likely to shatter, and the cannon itself would last longer and far less likely to break in use, which on a sailing ship or on a warship could devastate the crew around it. And that gave the English Navy a strategic advantage over the French. There was no graphite in France. And so Napoleon was extremely jealous 
of the graphite that existed in the English kingdom, knowing that their navy had the advantage. And few people realise that Borrowdale gave England a strategic military advantage that was of critical importance in growing the strength and um, success of the military and uh, winning wars and taking over lands all around the world. The speculators who came here, what was the character of some of these people? They weren't locals, presumably. Well, actually, in the, in the mid-1500s, after the Crown Commissioners had been here and set the rent, the people who took the lease tended to be relatively local entrepreneurs initially who were just finding material to be used for local markets. But once we get into the 17th century, so the early 1600s, we start getting more professional people. And the first, I would say, real professional miners that took the lease on this site were Daniel and Emanuel Hexstetter, who lived in Keswick. German? Uh, they were German. They'd been born in Germany um, in the, the mid-1500s. They'd come to Keswick with their father, also called Daniel Hexstetter, in 1572. That bracken. I knew it would be a problem, but thank goodness, using his intuitive knowledge of this space, dear Mark found the original miner's trod, which uh, gives us a little bit of a reprieve, and uh, it gives me a chance in the shade to look back for a moment at this amazing amphitheatre at the head of the valley, looking up <laughs> Grains Gill with uh, Hind Crag and Allen Crag's Gill and uh, Seathwaite Fell and Base Brown, the regular path that goes up to Stiehead and up uh, Grainsgill, up towards Eskhalls. This is the country of fellwalkers, but this is also the scene of history. And that whole scene has this farmstead of Seathwaite Farm, and uh, there is a dwelling a bit further on in the trees. Uh, has that significance to the farm, Mark? No, that, that building there was built for the mine. If you look at it, it's at a different angle from the other buildings in the Seathwaite Hamlet. It is oriented to look straight towards the hillside that we are climbing. And that's where the mine manager would live. And so he could look out of his window during the day and his bedroom window during the night to see if he could see any lights flickering on the hillside that might indicate that there was smugglers or bandits abroad trying to rob the precious wood. So, the Germans, they had skills. They came over here as a result of Queen Elizabeth I. She brought them over here to exploit all the minerals they could. What skills did they bring, Mark? So, two fundamental skills the Germans brought in mining, which was the digging of adits. Um, they also brought smelting technology because the Mining lead, and to a far greater extent copper, involves very complex smelting requirements to be able to get the, the mineral that comes out of the ground and convert it into the metal that you can use for armaments and utensils and machines and what have you. The Germans had that smelting technology, but they also had financial technology. They came from Augsburg, which was the centre of the banking and merchant um, houses of Europe. And that was where the money, the capital could be raised to take mining to a different level. So taking it from like a little owner-managed business, one chap with his shovel and his bucket, to a fully capitalised industry where you've got patient capital that can invest in long-term returns. Because to drive and add it, through to the, um, the mineral vein and to build a smelter and to build all the other infrastructure you need can take years and years before you get payback. No individual can afford to wait that long for payback. You need a company with shareholders. You need bankers with debt and loans. And that's what the Germans brought. Many people recognise the Germans taught the English how to mine. They also taught them how to finance mines, and those skills were used to finance all sorts of other industries in subsequent decades and, and centuries. When Elizabeth inherited the crown, um, her father, Henry VIII, had been a profligate monarch. You know, he's famous for many things, but one thing he was certainly rubbish at was economics. Despite the fact he, he unlocked a huge wealth in dissolving the monasteries, he blew it. Um, so the, the crown that Elizabeth took over, obviously from her 
brother and her sister was pretty much bankrupt. She realised, as many of her senior courtiers realised, those skills, those knowledge, that technique didn't exist in England, but it did exist in the Germanic nations uh, of the day. And they went and did a joint venture agreement with a company in Augsburg that brought across the, the technology of smelting and of mining, the financial skills of banking and loans, um, and the manpower. And they were given the right to set up anywhere in Elizabeth's kingdom. And they were granted a monopoly and they were granted patents over their technology. And this was groundbreaking stuff, no pun intended, that, that set the course for the industrialization of the British Isles with those rights and responsibilities and protections and financing skills. Those Germans chose, given the right to go anywhere they liked, they chose to go to Keswick. And we believe that was because there must have been some residual memory that Keswick had had mining in previous centuries. The man who came over to prospect was Daniel Hextetter, senior. He came to Keswick, he, he spent 1564 and then subsequently 1565 prospecting the area. He realised there was a viable amount of copper uh, and to a lesser extent lead in the local hills. And he came over in force in 15. 66 with a large company of men bringing women and children with them and that transformed Keswick from a fairly rural backwater of a small economy dependent on wool and and maybe some timber industries um, in come these blonde blue-eyed Germanic men um, with money any miners they've got some cash in their pocket and two very distinct reactions the local women thought Ooh, here we go. This is good news. Some very attractive men to show an interest in. Whereas the local men's response was very different. They were jealous. They were seeing their wives and girlfriends' eyes or heads turned. Within months, there was pregnancies, there was births. The Crossweight Parish Registers, you know, Crossweight Church, that was the parish church of this area in the day, is full of stories. All the Germans were called Almonds in the parish records. Um, Almond being what they would have called Germans in those days, Alemannia. There was a baby boom in Keswick, not always to married couples. And there was one other gentleman who had a very different response and that was the Duke of Northumberland. So in those days, he, Northumberland, owned a lot of this land. And he um, said, hang on, if you're going to mine on my land, that's my land, I want to control this, I want the economic returns from this mining. And the Crown said, sorry mate, you're not having it, the Crown has the right to the precious minerals within the earth. Um, and there was a big case, the, the case of mines um, in the 1560s and early 1570s. And needless to say, Percy lost that case and very soon after lost his head, um, found it on a spike at the walls of York. The story always is that they were camped on Derwent Island in Derwent Water. Is that hooey? I think what we need to understand is that when the Germans did arrive, as I say, the women find the men attractive, so the local men find the men very threatening and very competitive, and they gave them a hard time. And with the encouragement of Percy, Earl of Northumberland, the local men were actually, I believe, um, financially induced to give violence towards the German men. And so the Germans at one stage, quite initially in their time in Keswick, were really physically threatened to the extent that one of them was killed by a mob. Leonard Stoltz was beaten to death. Daniel Hextetter wrote a report saying, we are beyond the law here. Um, they really felt vulnerable. So the legend has come out that they bought Derwent Isle and set up camp to defend themselves from the, the local um, violent population. But the reality is they only bought Derwent Isle some three or four years later. Uh, by that time, it had quickly calmed down. Two things happened to make it calm down. As I said, Northumberland lost his head and the Germans realised you had to get the local men on board by giving them jobs. So they'd quickly fall into line. The Germans did buy Derwent Isle, but they used it as a bit of a pleasure island. They created a little bit of Germany on Derwent Isle. They had a piggery there, they had a brewery there, and basically they went over there for parties.
Well, there's somebody talking. That sheep, that herdwick, taking advantage of the shelter of that silver birch. And we're at the top of a definite long spoil heap. And in front of me, there is the remains of a building and a few steps. And this is Gilbert's, what was it? Mine house. Gilbert's mine house. Let me explain about Gilbert's mine house. As I said earlier, WAD became more and more valuable and therefore necessary for more and more protection particularly because of its strategic importance in the armaments industry and giving the British Navy the best guns. So every entrance to the mine was protected by a very solid, secure building. And what we see here today are the remains of the mine house, which completely controlled access to the main entrance to the mine. At one stage, for, for many years, this was the only way in and out of this mine. Every other entrance was walled up very, very securely. And so everybody who went into the mine and everything that came out of the mine did so from this entrance here. And this building, it consists of a smithy where they could sharpen the tools, um, a guardhouse where the guards would stay 24 seven, and a search room where all the miners would literally be strip searched at the end of every shift to ensure they weren't sneaking some of the precious wad out um, in a, uh, you know, some, some place. I'll leave that to your imagination. So this strip searching, it was significant because you could secrete a wad on your anatomy. What was the value of it for them? Well, the reason why that became so important was this is one of the very few minerals that you can take out of the ground and carry it home and then sell it in its raw form um, and get a very precious marker. All other minerals come out of the ground and they need processing, which no individual would ever have the skills, knowledge or, or machinery to do. But WAD comes out of the ground in a very sellable form. So the miners are very tempted to sneak some out and sell it under the table in one of the pubs in Keswick. At one stage in the late 1700s and well into the 1800s, a handful of WAD would be worth a week's wages. So the temptation was very, very high to sneak some out. And so the mine owners not only were trying to build this mine house to protect it from theft, from bandits and, you know, robbers who weren't involved in the mine, they were actually very keen to protect the mine from theft by the miners themselves. And, of course, the value of it meant that people were prepared to do almost anything to get that wad. Yes, indeed. I mean, we have documented history evidence of people raiding this place with armed force. So the guards were in a very perilous position. You're a very isolated place here, high up on a hill. Imagine being here on some dark night, hearing noises outside and wondering who's approaching the building. And we know for a fact that on one occasion, the mine building was attacked by a big group of men intent on getting the, the wad at all costs. The guards feared for their lives. They huddled in a corner of the guardhouse with all the shutters up. And then the robbers tried to get in the roof. They started pulling away the slates from the roof to climb down into the building from which they could access the mine. We know one of the guards took a blunderbuss, pointed it up at the new hole that was appearing in a roof and set off the charge. A huge blast and the sound of a man moaning in agony as he rolled off the roof and the body of that man was found a few yards away where he'd crawled off to die. For the guard's point of view thankfully that was enough to repel that particular raid but many other raids were successful and there's always a suspicious that maybe the guards were on the take and you know there was a bit of cooperation going on. Whilst we will never know we strongly suspect that an awful lot of wad left this uh, site completely unofficially. So we'll ought to make an approach to that level entrance. So, gentlemen, it's a very, very warm day. Can I introduce you to the local air conditioning? Just step this way. Right. It is rather warm here. There's a breeze uh, behind us, but it's no good. It's very hot. It's a wonderful day. Anybody who comes to Borodell and gets this... Oh! Here we have the wind billowing out of the mine. Wow. This mine is breathing still. Despite the fact Ooh. the entrance has collapsed, the air can still find its way out. The air that we're standing in now is about 12 degrees centigrade. Outside, just a few yards from us, it's probably 
25 degrees centigrade. Very much. Um, and the air Ooh. here has been underground for a long time, and it's it's picked up the temperature of the inside of the hill, which is probably single digits, probably seven, eight degrees. And as it's found its way out to the surface, we can stand here and be kept wonderfully cool, which is why when you come up here on a warm day, you'll often find the sheep clustered around these sort of vent holes. Wow, it's a sheep hole. One thing that such entrances to any natural or man-made underground space, the air venting out of that space will always be a different temperature from the air outside. So in the winter, when the air underground is warmer than outside, as the air comes out, it will often condense, creating clouds of smoke coming out of the mine. And I believe, and I can't document this, that that maybe is where you get the legend of dragons breathing fire, living in caves underground. Because people would look up at the entrances to these natural or man-made caves and they would see smoke puffing out. Because mines breathe. It's not a constant flow, it's a sort of off, on, off, on. And that would blow out puffs of smoke that you could just imagine somebody imagining there's a fire-breathing animal under there. We moved on a little further. I can see the top of Great End and the slope at the head of Gillicombe towards Green Gable. And I can look back to Helvellyn and the Dodds, Stourborough Dodd, Great Dodd. This is a moment where I'm reflecting back on the wad, actually, Mark. Can you give me a bit of an idea of how it was formed? What we're standing in today was extraordinarily different, the landscape, hundreds of millions of years ago. This was a very volcanic area. During the creation of this ground that we're standing on, 450 million years or so ago, there would have been numerous volcanoes doing their thing here. Over in Gillicombe, that is the, um, the vent of a volcano. The whole coom. The whole coom is the vent of a volcano. And, and so Base Brown around to Brandworth, around uh, Gillicombe itself, and Great Gable and Green Gable. That is the sort of rim of a volcano. Geologists argue about this, about how the WAD was formed. But one of the theories I've heard, and it sounds as credible as I know, but I'm not a geologist, I should emphasise, is that about 450 million years ago, the conditions just hit perfect. We have the Skidor slates underneath us here. They're a carboniferous rock, and the word you want to capture there is the carbon. And the heat and the conditions under that carboniferous rock was momentarily right to liquefy that carbon and supersaturate the magma with carbon. And that surged up from deep below, up through the rock, found a passageway up through little cracks, little splinters in the rock and, and filled little voids in the rock full of this liquid carbon that then would quickly solidify and leave the solid graphite in this mountain. It was the big bang moment. It was the big bang moment and, and geologists believe it could literally have been momentary. This isn't formed over decades or centuries or millennia. This formed in moments when the conditions just happened to be right. And it's vanishingly rare. There's only one other place where graphite is formed in the same volcanic way in Europe and that's at Huelma in southern Spain, near Granada, and that's a, an inferior deposit. The reason why this deposit became world famous, because graphite exists in plenty of other places, there's an awful lot of it in uh, Sri Lanka and in Mexico, and there is some actually in um, Germany as well, but they're not formed by volcanic action. It's formed by a different action which creates a much coarser, much less pure graphite. The action here produced the finest purity of graphite, which is why Borrowdale pencils were literally world famous for being the finest graphite to be found anywhere on the planet. And we have this term applied here, plumbago, which is a part of the term plumbing, which actually refers to lead. Yes, yeah, so the Latin word for lead, is, it has the word plum in it. Um, and that's why we have plum bobs and plum lines, uh, lead weights on the end of a string. Yeah, so the use of the expression black lead was an early 
term applied to WAD or, or to graphite. Um, and we believe that name was given to it because when the first miners came across this material, they didn't know what it was. They didn't know what to call it. As ever, you name it by reference to something you knew. Now, those miners knew what lead looked like and, and galena, which is the, the way lead presents itself in its natural state, is a very silvery, shiny uh, material. Not completely dissimilar by visual look to what graphite looks like. It's quite shiny, but it's darker. So they said, well, it's like, it's like lead, but blacker. So they called it black lead. Now, it's nothing to do with lead. It's got completely different physical properties, totally different weight and, and density. But to this day, we still talk about lead pencils. Absolutely. Now, I look down now at Seathwaite Farm, the National Trust Farm there. You mentioned about the mine manager's house. I must assume that that was actually a settlement of miners, not a farm. Well, it was, but one of the very unusual ways this mine worked was it worked very sporadically. Um, quite soon into the um, 17th century, so the 1600s, the pattern emerged of, of the, the mine owners knew that WAD was a very um, finite supply. Whilst they dreamt of finding limitless resources of it, they, they knew that the, the struggle to find it suggested there wasn't a great deal of it to be found. So they wanted to ensure that its value was maximised. And the way you did that was you limit the supply to the market. Just you know, like the OPEC do with oil. Absolutely. You know, it's all the laws of demand and supply. So the practice emerged where this mine would open, it would work furiously, it would produce a certain tonnage, 50, 100 tonnes, whatever, of, of, of graphite. That would be packed into... Um, wooden uh, barrels mm -hmm. um, and then carted down to London where it was put in a bonded warehouse near Fleet Street today and from there it would be sold it would be auctioned to the highest bidders but the way they got the price up was they would say to the market we will covenant with you that we'll produce no more for five six seven years and so this is all the market will have. And the mine owners would covenant that the mine would be closed for seven years. And at the expiration of seven years, the mine owners would reopen the mine and they would mine for more um, black lead. Now, that will not therefore sustain a permanent workforce who work for, say, six months and then are laid off for six years. That yeah, just doesn't work. They had to farm, didn't they? They had to farm, absolutely. So, so we believe the miners that worked here were made up largely of local farmers and um, possibly lead miners, possibly copper miners, because there are lead and copper miners in Borrowdale uh, as well at this time, who were probably paid a premium to come and work here when it was open. So the Seathwaite hamlet that we see down there will be storage rooms, maybe the mine manager's house, maybe the under manager's house, maybe some of the guards live down there, but actually the miners come from a much bigger catchment area. Having said that, the total number of miners that worked here were probably little more than a dozen, maybe, you know, a couple of dozen at the peak. Mining graphite is not as labor intensive as mining lead or copper. Uh, and as I said, a handful could be worth a week's wages. And yet, when they found a rich sop, they could be filling barrels and balloons full a day. They could be producing thousands of pounds worth. Well, we are coming to the end of this story. We'll traverse the slope and we'll aim to wind up this whole magical story at that point. Well, we've come across the steep bank and above me, I can see a, a wonderful array of anthills, very much a characteristic of this slope above the bracken. And I've still got this majestic view at the head of Borodale capturing my attention, but actually more specifically, my eyes alight upon what looks like a gravestone, John Banks Esquire, 1752. Well, the 52 element is dropped off and actually only very recently, which is very sad to see, is it a gravestone, Mark? No, this isn't a gravestone. This is a fine piece of Honister slate that was brought here in the 1750s to mark the territory of the Wadmine and to name the owner of this particular part of the Wadmine. 
At one stage, there was um, seven or eight of these stones dotted around the Wadmine area. I've seen the, one higher up. Yeah, there was one above, above the, the on the upper Wadmine, which has got John Shepherd's name on it, the same date, 1752. This one, we're in the lower Wadmine area here, and this came into the ownership of the Banks family. So this chap, John Banks, whose name is on this stone, he was the great-grandson of the original John Banks, who became an owner in the early 1600s. His sister, uh, John Banks's sister, married Daniel Hextetter's son. And, and that was how, um, when Daniel and Emmanuel Hextetter took over the mine in the early 1600s, one of their wives was um, sister of John Banks. She probably introduced John Banks. He, he was a quite already relatively wealthy and um, influential character. The Banks family were a well-known local family in Keswick with influence, landholding and, and wealth. John Banks invested initially in a fairly small way in the mine, quickly realised he was onto a good thing and then bought up any shares that came available and then eventually bought out the Hextetters and became a majority shareholder. The Banks family continued to be majority shareholders and effectively controllers of the mine right the way through the centuries up until 1981 when the whole of the Banks estate, which by then was an extraordinarily wealthy estate, they owned Kingston Lacey, which is a very, very grand house, in Dorset, in Dorset, but that was owned by the Banks family. And in 1981, Henry Banks gifted the whole of the estate to the National Trust. The wealth of the Banks family that went in to build Kingston Lacey came in no small way from the land that we're standing on here today. This mine produced the riches of Croesus some years. One year under the bank's ownership, this mine um, cost £4,000 in wages and tools and equipment to operate the mine, but the value of the wad sold that year was £108,000. So the profit that year, in that one year, was over £100,000. Now in the 1700s, £100,000 is unimaginable wealth. That would go a long way to building Kingston Lacey. Anybody listening to this is itching for us to mention the one thing that's associated with black lead, referring to the misnomer, which is the Derwent pencils, which are associated with Keswick. How does all that link together? Because the lead went from here to London. It is. It's one of the most um, surprising and, uh, and actually to the, to the pencil factory owners frustrating fact of life that the pencil industry started in Keswick in the early 1800s. Um, and during the, the 19th century, the 1800s, a number of pencil factories were opened in Keswick. Um, and one of the important raw materials for them wasn't actually the graphite so much, it was the water power. Because milling pencils um, requires moving machinery, turning machinery to turn the wood and turn and, and grind up the graphite. But no doubt those pencil factories were built there because this was a source of graphite. But only a few years later, the mine owners actually stopped supplying graphite locally and insisted that all graphite leaving this mine had to travel to London where it was held in a bonded warehouse and from there it was auctioned off to the highest buyers. Those buyers then controlled that stock, probably still kept in warehouses in London, and then sold it off in smaller parcels to the buyers uh, or to the end users. And the pencil factory owners would have to travel to London and to negotiate the purchase of wood to bring it all the way back to Keswick from where it almost started, maybe a few years earlier, uh, to work to be put into the pencils. They may as well have had a wheel pencil factory down in Kent, as uh, it absolutely. were. Absolutely. Well, as long as there was enough water supply and That's timber it. supply to, to produce the Keswick pencils. But there was also the brand association, as, as you said yourself. Derwent pencils became famous all over the world because they claimed to use the finest graphite. So it had a huge association with quality. So they still wanted to be Keswick pencils from the Derwent graphite 
graphite, even though the source uh, was a tortuous one with the graphite traveling all the way down to London. And then in subsequent decades, the graphite that went into Derwin pencils no longer came from here because the graphite ran out here. Um, in the second half of the 19th century, the graphite was exhausted. If you come here today, you won't find any graphite. You know, you can't get underground. The mine was exhausted and it closed. After that point, the graphite that went into Keswick pencils was sourced from all over the world. Still made in the Derwent Fells, but the graphite wasn't sourced from Derwent. So the final thing is, John Banks's family bequeathed this land to the National Trust. And so that the what we're standing on now is a monument to a, an industry and uh, a wider story of the National Trust custodianship of a, an amazing resource that is important to the history of Britain. And it's one that's overlooked uh, in many ways. The Robson level, right down at the bottom, we encountered right at the beginning, bankrupted the whole thing and more or less killed off the whole industry. Yes, every mine has its day and then has its, its declining years, and this mine was no exception. In the search for more and more wad, they went deeper and deeper, uh, further down the hillside, which necessitated driving longer and longer and therefore more expensive adits to try and drain and access those depths. Robson's level was the last attempt to find precious wad at depth. It was a very long adit, hundreds and hundreds of yards long, driven through some appalling rock, which was very hard in places and then very soft in places. And if you ask a miner, you're hard to choose between the two because hard rock is painful to mine, but then stays up. Soft rock is easy to mine, but then keeps on falling in on you. Robson's level was driven at great expense by the investors and, and mine um, leaseholders at the time, and they ran out of money. They blew their financial brains in, in that level, and um, exhausted their resources, and that was the last throw of the dice. Nobody then, after that, could ever reopen and economically work the mine because all of the wad had been removed and the place became, as we see it today, a quiet shadow of its former self. But we should reflect that where we stand today, which is a quiet hillside surrounded by the noise of sheep and this wonderful view, at one stage between the 1600s and 1700s and into the 1800s would have been the scene of great economic industry with men and to a lesser extent women and children making their living from the process of producing the wonderful Derwent Wad. Journey's end back at the campsite at Seathwaite. The sun higher in the sky now. Valley's actually quietened out, hasn't it, Mark? Everybody's up on the high fells. Um, but yeah, wonderful, very interesting. Delve into the very dense history of this incredible valley. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't put our heads in the mine, which is understandable. It's, it's a dangerous place. Yeah. But we got all the drama and all the sense of heritage and people and the unusualness of this site from Mark. He, he was amazing. I hope our listeners didn't get too confused by having two Marks, but we had one Mark who was top Marks. <laughs> what? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Even by your standards, uh, that was a long, long. winding road to a punchline. Right, anyway, <laughs> I feel uh, it's difficult to um, follow that on really with much sense. We will instead uh, do the usual housekeeping. Uh, this is our 60th happy birthday edition. Special? Yeah, special and obviously, yeah, as we said earlier on, back to the very source of our very first uh, trial recording. I did actually look through the archives, Mike, see if I had... Do you still have a copy of that? No, all I've got is a few mm. pictures. It's such a shame. Well, maybe we'll put a picture of us looking uh, teenaged in uh, oh, yeah, we now. Would. Yeah, I would, would love to have dug up our little recording, but it was very amateur. I think we hadn't invested in the, the wind baffle at that time, so it was uh, virtually inaudible. We're episode number 60. For all 59 previous episodes, you can visit www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media, Mark. 
at Countries Tried One, Facebook and Twitter. You can drop us a line anytime. There's a contact us form on the website. If you'd like to support us, you can buy one of our two books, The Thrill Curled Walking Companion or The Oldswater Way Official Guide. Uh, and next up, I think yet again, we don't quite know, do we, Mark? Summer's a funny old season and the weather is variable, so we really just book a few days in advance. But regardless of where we go next, it will be somewhere in this fabulous county and for today, from Seathwaite on this beautiful, flawless summer's day, we're saying goodbye for now. <laughs>